friends, and welcome back to the Healthier Together podcast. I am your host, Liz Moody, and I am a journalist and cookbook author living in Brooklyn. And today I have on one of my absolute favorite women in the food world, an absolute powerhouse, Carla Lolly Music. Carla is the former food director at Bon Appetit, a little magazine that you may have heard of, which means she was basically heading up all of the food content that they produce from the print magazine to the websites, including Basically and Healthy-ish, and also their amazing and hugely popular YouTube channel. She is currently the food editor at large for Bon App, and she writes a ton of content and appears in a number of their videos, including her own hugely successful show, which is called Back to Back Chef. It's one of my favorites. She cooks with celebs like Nina Dobrev, Anthony Porowski, Alessia Cara, who sings uh, that song from Moana that I'm obsessed with, the one that's like, I've been staring. Yeah, I'm not going to sing it to you, but Alessia Cara, uh, Elizabeth Olsen, and tons more. She kind of like goes back to back with them and tries to walk them through cooking a recipe. And it's really funny and really fun. And we definitely talk about that on this episode. And I get some celeb scoop because, you know, I love my celeb scoop. She is also the author of When Cooking Begins, which is an absolutely gorgeous cookbook that really focuses on teaching people how to tackle every single stage of cooking. So it starts with the shopping and how she actually shops in her own life. And she's also hard at work on her next cookbook, which I am so, so excited for. In this episode, we start off with the professional, including how she climbed the ladder to the absolute top of the food media world and what she says when people ask her how they can get jobs at Bon App, including like how you can pitch and sort of write for Bon App, which I personally found interesting. It's a definite goal of mine to have a piece published with Bon App someday. So send positive vibes my way. Um, And then also she talks about like what life is like behind the scenes of the famous BA test kitchen. I think we've all sort of gotten familiar with the BA test kitchen through their YouTube channels. And they have this like very approachable tone in the magazine. And I don't know, it's fun to hear what it's really, really like beyond just kind of what they're showing you. And then because it's me and because it's healthier together, we get really personal too. Uh, we talk a lot about sort of, it was it was before Me Too came around, but uh, what women were treated like in the kitchens, in the restaurant world. And you hear so many stories about what life was like in the restaurant world for women, particularly when Carla was coming up. So we talk about that a little bit. And um, some of the stuff she shares is honestly appalling. Um, And we talk about her personal wellness routine and what it's like to go from being a relatively, I mean, she was a very powerful woman in the food world and in the media world, but she was relatively anonymous and she could sort of like go to the grocery store without getting recognized. And then BA's YouTube absolutely blew up and her videos started getting millions of views. And so now she gets recognized on the street. And we talk about what that sort of um, fame for your face is like and and how that messes with your mind and what you do with that. And we also talk about how working at Bon Appetit actually ended up messing up her relationship with food and how she actually fixed that. Her thoughts on wellness trends like celery juice and charcoal and intermittent fasting and CBD and a ton more. And then we also answer your questions. You guys give me so many good questions on Instagram. So definitely follow me on Instagram if you want to leave questions for future guests. I 
always put up a thing before I interview somebody. I say, I'm interviewing this person and you guys can ask all of your questions, but you ask things like her top three kitchen tools, which I loved, her curly hair secrets, which I thought was so, I don't know. I, I think her hair is fabulous, but I wouldn't have thought to ask her that. So that was definitely a good one. And then um, what else did you ask? Like how to get inspired to cook when you're just feeling really blech and like you don't want to get into the kitchen. What do you make on those types of nights? So this is just one of those super fun behind the scenes episodes that gives an interesting glimpse into this like crazy world that we don't really get access to the food media world and and producing a magazine like Bon Appetit. And these people are sort of dictating how we eat in this country and in the world in a lot of ways. And I just found that absolutely fascinating. And it's a great one if you're looking to have a really exciting career path. And then it's also just great if you're looking to get inspired in the kitchen, especially in a healthy food way. Carla has a theory on oranges and greens that I absolutely love. It's a great approach to healthy eating that I have never heard before. So if you love food, if you're interested in Bon Appetit, all of that, I think you're going to love this episode. We would love, of course, to hear from you as you are listening to the episode. So we want to know what you're loving, what's making you gasp, what's making you laugh, what you agree with. So screenshot it as you're listening in whatever podcast player you listen to, and then tag both of us on Instagram. I'm at Liz Moody, and she's at Lolly Music. So that's L-A-L-L-I Music. And I love reading all of your comments. Your comments on the last episode with Chris Stanton were absolutely amazing. You guys had so many thoughts on body image and anxiety and um, how you sort of develop a healthy relationship with food and The Bachelor, of course. So I love reading all of those and I love carrying on the conversation over there. So please, please screenshot, tag us. We would both love to hear from you. All right, I think that is it for me. So let's keep this super short. I hope you enjoy this episode with Carla Lolly Music. All right, Carla, thank you so much for having me to your home. We have one of her beautiful cats sitting to my left. Correct. That's Peggy. She's go- she looks like a kind of one of those perpetual kitten cats. Um, yeah, she's got a very like um girlish, you know, she's trying <laughs> to keep her figure. girlish demeanor. Yeah. <laughs> I dig that. Um, is this do you often work from home or is this like a special occasion? Um, this is a special occasion. I'm actually um taking some time out of the office um to focus on my second book. Oh, yeah. So well, I'm- let's let's get right into that. What's your second book? Because I heard an interview with you where you said you wanted to keep sort of making things easier and breaking things down and like and redefining what a recipe could look like for home cooks. Is that what this one's about? So this is going to be organized a little bit more instead of by ingredient or by um, like type of preparation, like, a you know, like a soup chapter or a, you know, salad chapter. I'm organizing the next book around how we really cook in our real lives. So it's going to be divided between like how we cook Monday through Thursday and then how you cook Friday and the weekend. Because I started to notice after publishing Where Cooking Begins that I would get tagged in certain recipes depending on the season, of course, but also depending on like the day of the week. So people make my pasta fagioli on Saturday and Sunday because it has like a four hour simmering time. And people make the um, charred broccoli salad on like Wednesday night because it's a really easy like thing that could be a side on your um, your weeknight supper. Right. So I started really thinking about, you know, 
that's really true. Like we cook different things depending on the opportunity in front of us. But I also believe that like cooking is one of those amazing things. You have a reason to do it every day, you know, because we have to eat eat every day. Um, So that I was trying, you know, organizing my thoughts around that. And so within the Monday through Thursday chapters, there's different scenarios like there's the weeknight supper, but there's also the things I want to eat when I'm trying to like burn clean with my husband and I. What does burn clean mean? (laughs) Burning clean is a phrase that my husband and I kind of developed like a hundred million years ago before we were even married. And it's like what we want to eat when we've been kind of overeating or over drinking. So there's room in our lives for like big meals and nights with a lot of wine. But then maybe that Monday night, you're like, can we just burn clean tonight? Which is just a healthy-ish meal. Right. So what does a healthy-ish meal look like to you? Like something for me, we also, another phrase, which I learned from our friend of mine is like beans, greens, and sardines as like a way of thinking about a meal. Okay. So burning clean might be just, you know, not having animal protein, um, not drinking. So grains and, you know, sauteed greens and maybe some like marinated feta. Like that would be a little grain bowl that you would have on like a burning clean night. And sardines are one of the healthiest types of fish. And I think they're like often forgotten. Totally. I ate um, at a little wine bar up the street last night and their whole menu is like um, sustainable and like low waste. Um, Is that the new one that just opened? Yeah. It used to be Meta. Yeah. 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 What's it called? Um, Rodora. Yeah. And we had like tinned mussels and tinned sardines and a really nice salad and some seedy bread and um, a little bit of cheese. And it was like a great dinner, you know? Um, So yeah, burning cleans, you know, stovetop suppers, things like that, that come together really quickly is, you know, more how I want to cook when I'm getting home from work. Okay. So we're going to get into some of the more like cooking questions, but I want to roll back a little bit because I think a lot of people are very fascinated with how one becomes the food director to Mm -hmm. place like Bon Appetit and how one becomes a successful cookbook author. So let's start in your childhood. Oh, okay, great. (laughs) All the way back. Were you raised in a food like interested family? Yes, definitely. So we're Italian American. So I think food is just like in the blood, but also my mother is a um, an amazing cook, um, but also wrote about food and edited cookbooks and wrote cookbooks. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so she's a food writer going back to you know the beginning of her career um, as a journalist. Were and you in New York? We I was born in Los Angeles, and then we moved to New York when I was a toddler. Uh, they grew up in New Jersey, so they're from Jersey. We lived in Brooklyn, then we moved back to LA. Uh, my sister was born there, and then we moved back to New York when I was eight. Could they just like not decide? Well, they it was really for job opportunities. Okay, yeah, it was like they um, they moved out to LA to work at New West, which was the LA co- the you know West Coast version of New York Magazine. Um, so, and my dad worked at. Um, Esquire and Forbes and my dad was a writer as well, just not in the food area. Correct. Yeah. So they're both journalists and writers. And um, my mom ended up really on the food beat pretty early on. Um, She was a restaurant reviewer and a food writer, then moved into cookbooks. So my our life in New York, she was uh, the cookbook editor at Simon and Schuster. Oh, my God. Yeah. 
And so we, the food at home was great. And then we also went out, you know, ate at restaurants a lot and we would always have great food in restaurants. So for me, like all the food was good. The food I ate out was great. <laughs> the food we ate at home was terrific. Yeah. Um, and it's funny because I didn't really grow up cooking with my mom. Um, I just grew up eating really, really well and watching someone who could make meals sort of appear out of thin air. That's what it seemed like to me. Um, and I think we just had like a very healthy and, um, you know, emotionally positive relationship to food. It was celebration. It was nurturing. It was love. And it was also just something that happened every day. Okay. Um, and I really didn't start cooking for myself until I got to college because the food was bad. <laughs> it was like the first time I was like, this food's not so good. And when you went to college, <laughs> what did you think you were going to be? Um, as far as my career, yeah. I didn't know. I had a, I went to Brown and I studied um, literature and society, which was a major in the modern culture and media department, which was really like a, it was like a critical, it was like a literary criticism um, major, but that also had a lot of critical theory and like reading Foucault and like, you know, a lot of feminist literature and feminist criticism. So I was just enjoying this like liberal arts experience. Um, and I like to write, but it was very like college essay writing. Yeah. Um, and then when I got out of school, I worked in book publishing for a couple of years. And then I worked in like the first wave of the internet in the late nineties. Um, yeah, for which was, <laughs> I know like way ahead, like AOL dial up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then the website that I was working for actually folded. So I was laid off and I had like a little severance package. Like, I think it was like eight weeks. Okay. And how I, old are you here? I was 25, okay. maybe. Um, and I was doing some freelance editing and copywriting on the side, but I really wasn't like, I just wasn't what I really wanted to do. And I, I remember being on the phone with my dad and he said, you know, if you, if you ever thought about going back to school, like this would be a great time to do it. Like it's a natural break. Um, and I decided to, to go to culinary school. It was like the only school I could imagine wanting to go to. I didn't want to get a PhD or a master's or anything like that, but I did, I was really interested in food and cooking and decided to enroll in the French Culinary Institute, which is now has a different name. It's the International Culinary something, ICC, I think. Yeah, Um, And I did the full-time six-month course there. And as soon as I started doing it, I was like, this is it. You know, I love this. I love everything about this. I love learning. I love um, making food. I love eating food. I love thinking about food. Um, there was something very like magical about doing something with my hands because I never thought of myself as a creative person. Like I can't sing and I can't dance. I can't act. I can't draw. Um, so I had never thought of myself as like creative. And then when I started cooking, it was like, oh, this is the thing you make with your hands, you know? Um, and so straight out of school, I ended up working in restaurants. So how did the restaurant world turn into the editorial world? I know you worked as the general manager at Shake Shack, which 
is overseeing all the Shake Shacks, right? It's not well, like at what that we... time there was only one Shake Shack. Okay. So it was how the does... one in Madison Square Park. Yeah. Okay. What is, so you were like in the kitchen and then how did you make the switch to being a manager? Well, I had worked my way up through line cook to like back of house operations. Um, after Montreche, I was a private chef. And then I ended up at Union Pacific where Rocco Despirito was the chef. And I was a line cook there for a while. And then ended up becoming the kitchen manager. So then had kind of moved more into um, budget, scheduling, ordering and receiving. Um, did you still like, I mean, did that scratch the same creative itch that cooking with your hands did? Yes, because I think when I started cooking, I thought ultimately my goal was going to be to be a restaurant owner operator, you know, like a chef owner, have my own place. So being a line cook, but then also getting to learn the nuts and bolts of the business. I was like, this is great because my hours are way better, you know, working daytime hours and responsible for the kitchen budget. So um, the food, you know, learning about food cost and expenses and like how to schedule. So it was kind of my first managerial experience surrounded by people who were like not good managers, but that's just how restaurants are. Um, and I did that and then worked up through the ranks with staying with Rocco. So I became like his main operations person, but I still would also sometimes cook in the kitchen. And also with him, I started doing press stuff because he was doing a ton of press and he was also writing cookbooks. So he would go on TV like all the time. He'd go on Martha Stewart. He would go on the Today Show, whatever. And I would work with him on creating the recipe that he would demo. Okay. And he knew that I had like a liberal arts degree that I could put a sentence together. So I think he saw in me someone who was like had restaurant experience, but also had, you know, verbal skills, organizational skills. And like that was a good match. Did you know? having like the insider view of media that you got from your parents help too? Or I, did you not like pay attention to that because you're a kid and you're like, I don't, I don't care. know how much that paid attention to it. I think just being a good communicator was really helpful. and. I think I'm sure I leaned on my mom for help on how to write a recipe the first time, you know, because when I was cooking, nobody had recipes. You just learned yeah. because someone showed you how to do it and you took notes in your little notebook. I learned that the hard way interviewing chefs and being like, oh, can I get the recipe for this? And they're like chef written recipes, if they haven't written cookbooks, are appalling. They're, they're so hard to follow. <laughs> You're just like, I don't know what you mean. And why are you doing that? Or it's like yields two gallons. You're like, oh, cool. Now I have two gallons of salsa verde. So we're going to have to adjust that. <laughs> have a barbecue. Yeah. Um, we'll get back to the career progression thing in a sec. But I'm curious, did you, we talk, there's been a lot of conversation about how women have been treated in the restaurant world. And you worked in it in a time mm -hmm. before people were having those conversations. Mm, oh, we were having those conversations. Maybe less publicly. Yeah. One-on-one. -on -one. Like, yeah. are you, or did you, know, did did you like having to change in an open area in front of all of your male coworkers? Uh, interesting. Um, I worked at Union Pacific. I was lucky at Montrachet and at Union Pacific. I was the second woman hired. So there was always had been someone who had been there solo. And um, at Union Pacific, I remember trailing, like doing my tryout day and um, trying to find a moment to like ask this woman, Chris what's it, how is it here? Mm -hmm. And she was working like so hard. I mean, I could just, you know, she never stopped moving. 
And she said, like, you seem like a really nice person and like totally together. (laughs) Don't take this job. Like this is this place is insane. And of course, like I interpreted that as like a challenge. (laughs) I should take this job. Um, But when I became kitchen manager, it really I was in charge of staffing. Um, So I did all the recruiting and there's a lot of turnover in a place like that where you work 14 or 16 hour days, six days a week. Um, So I had the opportunity to hire people and I just had decided I'm going to hire as many women as possible because I knew it made it better for me that there was another woman there. And I thought that if the you kind of shift the the ratio, that it would just change the dynamic. And it 100 percent did. Because we were, you know, it was, yeah, it was all that. It was gross. It was like. Was it just like comments or? Comments, um, you know, a lot of comments, a lot of dirty jokes, a lot of not like actually getting like slapped on the ass. But there was just like, um, it was like, there was just like sexual talk all the time. The sous chef was like you know, looking at porn on breaks, you know, there was just like gross vibes. And then we also did, we had an open like locker area that was just like an a area between point A and point B there, and you were that, you had, to change that you're there. expected to change. And if you didn't want to change there, you would have to go into the one staff bathroom and change in the bathroom. It was the kind of thing where you're like, I'm going to call so much more attention to myself mm-hmm. But then at the same time, when I look back at it, I was like, we were like stripping down to our underwear and bra in front of all of our like, that's not. And there was really no one there, you know, from the GM level or whatever to be like, this is not this is not good practice. Do you know what I mean? Um, There was no HR department. There was no like real way that you aired a grievance. So you just kind of had to get through it. and that was definitely the culture, you know. Um, and what then about it w- like the the Anthony Bourdain sweet bitter, like everybody's out doing drugs and partying in the restaurant world. Is that true? I mean, that as was definitely well? something that I saw and was surrounded by. I was a little bit older than the other cooks, and by older, I was like. 26, 27, you know, Um, but I was married already and my husband didn't work in the food business. And I think that for me, that kept me grounded a little bit because I wanted to come home when I finished my shift. I didn't want to stay out until five in the morning. And that I think was just me. Um, And my my social life was outside of my restaurant coworkers, whereas I think a lot of people your life, your whole life is the people you work with are also the people you go out with. Especially because the hours I think are so weird that yes. you're like at 2 a.m. Who else are you going to call? You're And you're kind of wired. Like I would come home after my shift and usually my husband was already in bed and it w- takes a couple hours to kind of like work that adrenaline yeah. back out. Um, so would you, what would you do? Would you just like lie there? Yeah, kind of. I would come home and usually eat something, shower, you know, like you're pretty gross. Um read. I don't know. Did I watch TV? Maybe. I remember definitely coming home, needing to eat something, showering, and then discovering in the shower, like where all the burns on my body were <laughs> located. And like, you didn't have like FOMO of like, oh, all these people are out having this grand No, because time. they would come back in the morning, like still drunk. And it didn't seem fun to me. Okay. I was just like, I can't. I, that's not. How do you even get through that day? I mean, even then I remember thinking like, 
So you worked 16 hours, you partied till 6 a.m., you slept for three hours, and then you came back here and like you're kind of still wasted. Yeah. It just seemed un, it just didn't seem like that much fun to me. And maybe, and I'm lucky that, I mean, maybe I just got lucky, you know? Yeah, for sure. Um, Okay. So you're getting sort of this media exposure through Rocco and working with him. Was there a point where you were like, maybe I'll go and edit? Like you actively were thinking your career could go in that direction? No, I think then I still really wanted, I loved restaurants. So actually the more work away from restaurants he started doing, the more I missed being close to food. And that's why I ended up working at Shake Shack um, because I wanted to work for another big restaurant group and I wanted to be back in that. I missed having colleagues who were cooking. I missed being close to the kitchen. While I was still at Shake Shack, I started um, doing sort of moonlighting again in the culinary management program at um, the Institute for Culinary Education, which was right down the street. Um, and when I left Shake Shack, it was really because after two years, I was like, I'm, I'm kind of exhausted. I don't know if I can do this anymore. So I started, um, doing culinary management and teaching and also, um, consulting on restaurants. So I'd kind of like taken a step back from the day to day and while I was doing that, a friend of mine reached out because her friend had just become the editor in chief of everyday food, which is a Martha Stewart. So I was teaching this culinary management class. I was consulting on restaurants and my friend was like, she wants to meet people. And I think she wants to meet people who like don't necessarily have like a hardcore food journalism background. And I was like, well, I'll just go meet with them because at the very least I'll have like a great story about going through Martha Stewart HR for my students who were all really interested in food media. And I didn't ever really have a great handle or great advice for them. So I was like, sure, I'll go on the interview. So I ended up going on this interview to be the deputy editor of Everyday Food. And after like six months, I got hired. (laughs) So I never thought I was going to get that job, but I kept going. I would have an interview and then nothing would happen. And then three weeks later, she would like call me again and be like, oh, I'd love to have you come back in for another interview. And I just kept going back. Like, I don't know where this is going. And I kind of didn't, I didn't have anything super vested in it because I was happy with my other gig. And were they asking you editorial questions? Like, were they asking you about stories that you would package? And like, how did you know the editorial side having not worked in it? That's a great question. Um, I think that, yeah, she was asking about story ideas, recipes, cooking at home, like what you would want in a food magazine. Um, And that was a great magazine, too. It was like this awesome little digest sized magazine that just had great ideas. Um, And I think a lot of it was just like we got along and had good, you know, she was bouncing ideas off of me and I was giving feedback. I think she liked it that I had worked in restaurants and had like a real culinary background and um, had a lot of other people on staff who were more editorially like, you know, that was their whole career. Did you have any sort of like imposter syndrome when you started working there and you were directing people who'd worked their way up in the editorial world? No, weirdly, no. The hardest, the thing that I was the most worried about was just understanding the, the computer, um, 
the the I guess it's an app, whatever the computer program. The yeah, that was like in copy where, you know, the layout and the right. words were coming together. And I had a lot of like, am I going to be able to learn how to put the article in the right place and, you know, style the headlines? It was much more like nuts and bolts. Yeah. But no, I had a lot of feelings of like writing a headline is a lot like writing a recipe name for a menu. How long were you there? And then how did the switch to Bon App come about? I was there for two years. And um, when I went to Bon Appetit, Adam had become the new editor in chief. And I knew that he was hiring and staffing up. Um, I didn't reach out to them, even though my dad might think my dad was like, huge opportunity. <laughs> you know, big, this doesn't happen every day. This did you know Adam? I didn't know him, but like I was, you know, reading up on him and and then he hired Christine Mulkey, who I had like seen her byline forever as a food writer. And I was like, oh, it's going to be like that. Like Christine Mulkey was like the coolest, like, you know, pedigreed. I was just like, oh, I'm not. I think that I had more imposter syndrome about B.A. Um, and just being like, oh, they're hiring like really cool people, cool people who have been writing about food for a really long time. Like they're they're not looking for me. But then in the end, like I got an email directly from the managing editor who had gotten my name through another friend and she wanted to meet me. So again, I like went to this interview that I was like, I'm not going to get this job. There's no way. And, um, they ended up calling me back like three times. I did two edit tests. I had multiple interviews. I spent weekends, you know, working on story pitches and headlines and I had to edit a long form article. I mean, it was a lot. It was the edit test was real. I did two rounds and then I got hired to be the features editor. How do you come up with your ideas for your stories? Like, I'm always curious, especially at a place like Bon Appetit, where you guys are really driving a lot of the trends in the food world in the country. Are you guys finding trends and then reporting on them? Or are you literally just creating trends out of nowhere? It's a, definitely a combination. And I think working in a magazine that has um, had and you know, maintained like really close relationships to so many amazing chefs and cover covering restaurants and covering restaurants, like both through travel, but also through chef, you know, profiles and chef stories is like, you do sort of see what's happening. Mm -hmm. Um, and chefs tend to like lead in, you know, what new flavors are happening and different styles of cooking. And like, you can see now with chefs, like cooking with less meat, you know, um, changing like the way menus are put together. And if you can see that sort of happening in a bunch of different places across the country, it's like something's going on here. So ideas will come that way. A lot of ideas come through seasonality. Um, a lot of our ideas at BA, and this is something that Adam is so good at is like everyone who is on staff really is obsessed with food and either as a person who's discovering it or cooking it or both. And he has always encouraged us to like write about the thing that we're interested in and psyched for. Um, So some of it just comes from like, I'm doing this thing. I think it's awesome. And I want to like write about it. Um, Which is how we ended up doing like a bean story, which was not my pitch. Somebody um, was just like very interested like, in beans. Like literally the pitch was like beans. Beans are amazing. And we like and then that from there it's like, okay, like what are you talking about? Like, 
the world of dried beans. There's heirloom beans, like the different ways to use beans in other meals, the way that beans are a meal, like beans and cassoulet, a pot of beans, you know, refried beans. And then it's like, oh, there's a lot here and we can really like do something fun with this, you know? Um, but but it's coming from a place of someone really like loves beans and wants to talk about it. Do you ever get nervous? Like I watched the Making Perfect for Thanksgiving mm-hmm. and you guys pulled out all the back issues of Thanksgiving for Bon Appetit. And I feel like if I looked at all of those, I'd be like, well, everything that there is to say about Thanksgiving has been said. And 100%. What's, like at, at some point, do you get nervous? You'll just be iterating for the sake of iterating rather than to yes. improve anything. Yeah, that is definitely a concern, especially around something like Thanksgiving, which is such a set menu. Yeah. There's not a lot of room to be like, you know what? Let's not do a turkey this year. Like we can't do that. Um, but then that's also where the, challenge can come to um yeah because you know we joke about it we're like the best mashed potato recipe the most luxurious mashed potatoes the butteriest mashed potatoes the easiest mashed like, there's it's always like every a new adjective. year it's like really though i've had years where i'm like no actually the ones that we did two years ago are the best <laughs> like now what are but we you still to have do? to do something new yeah, you do and and that's where i think collaboration and having all these other people to bounce ideas off of and and argue with or, you know, like debate and come up with something. I mean, the mashed potato recipe that we did this year with for making perfect, yeah, really came from like, we love mashed potatoes, but we also love crunchy. Oh, I feel like you guys did not love mashed potatoes. I feel like you were trying to sway people in the direction well, of crispy potatoes we were. and nobody was going your way. I was like, look, I don't have anything <laughs> against mashed potatoes, but like, I'm. does it have to be mashed potatoes? We've done yeah. mashed potatoes every year for a thousand years. Yeah. And so at the beginning, we were like, we want to not do mashed potatoes, but um, we were not like literally people wouldn't let us. So people on the street, but also people in the building were like, that's your, you guys are both insane. Like it has to be mashed potatoes. And so then we were still like, but how can we retain, we really do believe that like some texture, some crunch is going to change this and possibly make it better or at least more fun or different and not worse, you know? Yeah. And I think we came up with something that we were like, we were pretty psyched. I mean, I served them at my Thanksgiving this year, so... (laughs) Do you worry outside of big holidays? Like my biggest fear is that one day I'll sit down to pitch stories and I will not have any more. Like it'll just be over. Do you? Yeah, that's a really scary feeling with writing a second book um, because I felt like I gave so much of what I was passionate about in Where Cooking Begins and things I had thought about for so long. It's the second album thing. You put 14 years of your life into your first album and then you make your second album in two years. Exactly. And I've sat down to work on ideas and have literally written down exact recipes that are already in the first book. And I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, (laughs) wait, I guess it's a good recipe. That is familiar for some. And I'm like, yeah, you already, you did it or you, you know, that is a good idea. And it was so good that you put it in your first book. So it's been, you know, just a very different kind of process and finding time to, ask these questions like what does inspire me and what gets me excited and what do I crave and like what do I actually want to cook you know because the first book was more about all of the recipes that I make all the time and capturing them 
And the second book is like a hundred new ones, you know? And it's not like I have them in my back pocket. Like, um, so it's, it's hard. There was definitely like writer's block and there's definitely like ideas block. How do you break through that? (sighs) Um, it's rough. I have a weird process, but some of it was just spent like staring into space. Some of it, um, I found actually a lot of inspiration in going back to my really old cookbooks, like the ones that I read when I was a line cook. And so it's not like I'm finding the exact dish there, but just seeing combinations of ingredients or, and a lot of those old cookbooks don't have images in them. Yeah. And so you really have to like kind of read what is being described and visualize it. And that I think like got the wheels turning a little bit. Um, Even weird things like, you know, going through a bunch of cookbooks and being like cream, like all of these cooks were like cooking with cream. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? And how like that's an ingredient that I really have in rotation unless I'm making whipped cream for a dessert and like thinking about that not necessarily does that mean that I'm gonna have a bunch of recipes with cream but just like thinking about ingredients in a different way and like what does that bring to a dish and are we missing that component now yeah that's interesting you're listening to the healthier together podcast I get asked so often about what protein powders I use in my daily green smoothies. And in truth, there are only a few things that I use regularly, including hold hemp hearts, which you can find at most grocery stores and a super high quality grass fed collagen. One serving of collagen has 18 grams of protein, which when added to my green smoothies with some healthy fat like avocado is super critical in keeping me full through lunchtime. You really want to buy collagen from brands that you trust to ensure you're getting high quality product that comes from fully grass fed cows and doesn't have any heavy metals. And far and away, my favorite brand is Garden of Life. In general, I love Garden of Life because they are fanatic about quality. For instance, they source their collagen in Europe because GMOs are not allowed there and the cattle herds are much smaller and more traceable. And while you can't really buy organic collagen, Garden of Life is the closest that I've found. The cows are raised to strict organic standards and they aren't fed any grass that contains any form of herbicides, pesticides, or glyphosate. Beyond all that, it's one of the most affordable collagens on the market with a much more reasonable price point than other leading brands, which is important to me since I use it in my smoothies a number of times a week. I've used their unflavored one for over a year now, but they just launched two new collagens that I am super excited about, a chocolate and vanilla that combines the collagen with four organic seed proteins, including hemp seeds, pumpkin seeds, sunflower seeds, and watermelon seeds. Watermelon seeds are particularly cool. I've written a number of trend pieces about how watermelon seeds are one of the best new healthy protein sources, and Garden of Life is actually the first company that I've seen put them in a widely available product. So bravo, Garden of Life. I love the chocolate because, well, it's chocolate. And if there's something about like having a dessert-like green smoothie for breakfast that makes me not crave or need real dessert so much later on, as always, you can find all of my smoothie recipes on Instagram. I'm at Liz Moody. I share a new one every week or so, so you can get tons of ideas on how to use the collagen in your own life. You can find the unflavored collagen and the chocolate and vanilla ones at Whole Foods or on Amazon, but the best way to support this podcast is to click the links on lizmoody.com shop. It won't cost you anything extra, but it helps let Garden of Life know how you found them, and I massively, massively appreciate it. And if you have any questions about protein or collagen or Garden of Life, hit me up on Instagram. I am 
always, always happy to chat. All right, let's get back to the episode. What's the difference between a Carla Lally music recipe for a book versus for Bon Um, That's a great question, too. Uh, sometimes there's overlap, um, but I think when I'm developing for BA, it's a very clear articulation of like a need or a slot that we need to fill because that's how we look at lineups is like, the print lineup has a certain number of pages, a certain number of stories, their seasonality, um, and things like need to fit together. They can't repeat with other things that are in the issue that month. So you end up with this kind of like very specific, you know, hole to fill. When I'm developing um, and digitally that can happen too, because we have like five recipes a month that we're going to do on BA healthy-ish and basically and so like, what's the right mix? You know what I mean? Like you want two dinners. People love it when we have a dessert. Let's get a seasonal thing in, you know, and like what time of year is it? Should there be a holiday cocktail? Like you just end up with kind of like very specific slots to fill. Um, And then when I'm developing for a cookbook, I just have it's like this very brought that I think was what was so intimidating about book two was like at the beginning I had my idea that I was going to divide the week up between week weeknight and weekend but within those categories it was like it could be wide open um and yeah so it's much more like digging into what my own preferences and style of cooking are like what pleases me, you know? Whereas if you're doing something for BA, it's like people love carrots, you know? We got to have a carrot dish. And like for my own book, I'm like, I don't really like I put carrots in my sofrito, but like I don't need a ton of carrots. Right. So maybe there's like not going to be a carrot recipe. Are there foods that like you guys have? in your minds at BA that like, you're like, people love these foods and we, we should keep coming back to them. Yeah. I mean, there are certain things that like always do well, like you what? know, pasta, Okay, any type of pasta. <laughs> Pastas are big. Um, yeah. Pasta, Italian food, obviously Mexican, like people, those recipes tend to do well. I think we're pushing ourselves a lot more to get outside of, um, recipes are good because they've been good in in the past Mm -hmm. and think about like how many things haven't have we not done that are also incredible and just like deserving of this platform you know um and we use our ba's best category which is like there's a bunch of recipes under that rubric those are weirdly like we'll find that we haven't done very obvious things and that's when we'll be like, this should be a BA's best. Cause it's like, mm-hmm. it's not a riff on a thing. It's just like the, the thing. Best version yeah. of that thing. Um, I just developed a Tostones recipe, which is going to be out in January. And I was like, I love Tostones so much. And like, we didn't have, you know, the, there was one from like, the way you can tell now is like the, when the search result comes up on the site, the image is like pixelated, you know, because it's, so old yeah um or the image is like this crazy 
like some of them are just these crazy crops because they got put into a new template, but they right. didn't get resized. Um, so we didn't have a Tostone's recipe. I'm just like, this is one of the world's yeah. great foods. Yeah, like, yeah. how have we not done this? You know, and then you feel like, well, I need to do it kind of right. You know what I mean? Um, and then that will also kick off another wave of research and looking at a lot of cookbooks and previously published versions. And do you ever come across one, a recipe though, where you're like, this is a perfect Tostones recipe? What, like, this, I found it. It's here. I mean, Tostones is a good example because all of the, ingredients are the same it's green plantains frying oil and salt right Right. that's literally it so then what are you yeah so what are you doing you're talking about um uh a yield right a quantity a method for the best way to flatten the tostones talking about like really explaining to someone who's maybe never picked up a green plantain before what they're looking for how to get the skin off Mm -hmm. you know how to peel them how thick to cut them, um, what temperature the oil should be, like little fluctuations in there provide opportunities to like, how can I make this more foolproof? Or, you know, if you cut them too thin, they're just, they get really crispy, but they're kind of like, they're very dry and starchy. So you don't, you know, that was what I went through when I was developing. I was like, like quarter inch, half every an inch, you know, phase. two minutes. If you, I did learn because I got interrupted in the middle of recipe development one day that if you let them cool down after the first fry, they're so hard to smash. And I was like using a meat mallet. It's like they turn into like concrete. Um, so like, Good to that's know. a thing. Yeah. Like, don't, you, you know, there's a pause there where you do the first fry, then you smash and you do your second fry. You to be able to tell people if you're doing these for a party, you can pause in between the first fry and the second fry, but you have to smash them right when they get out of the oil. So like solving every problem that somebody might run into. On totally. The and then deciding like what we wanted. We wanted the, that little bit of fluffiness in the center. So we didn't want to cut them too thin. Stuff like that. So now your job is like evolved even more as you've sort of become a TV star. Mm-hmm. What? Is that like, like you're, you're famous, like you probably get recognized now on the street, right? Sometimes. Yeah. Which wasn't, I assume the case when you were. No, I had a byline and I was on the masthead for like. Yeah. For years and years and years. years. No one ever recognized me in my life. Like they might, it might be like you could get a restaurant reservation, but not. No, never. the grocery store. So what's that like? Um, I think it's still like surprising and flattering every single time it happens, even though it happens regularly now. And I think, I think for a lot of people, it's one of those things where it's like, you guys came out of nowhere. And I'm like, actually, we've been making videos for like three years, you know, and there was this like, very slow build to um, kind of doing it on a shoestring at the beginning. And trying a bunch of stuff out and like, was it going to be hands and pans? Was it going to be like host mm-hmm. and personality driven? You know, how, what is, how long are the videos? When do we shoot the videos? Like, you know, a lot of stuff that you are working out in that first like year, year and a half. And then as a strategy, like the business has to get behind it and the brand has to get behind it. It's like, yeah, as an investment and like, oh, we're going to do this. And then at a certain point you have a volume and it's working. And then like something is happening with the way YouTube works that is like, you know, 
beyond my pay grade, but that has its own kind of um, mechanics and what makes a video go viral, uh, what makes a bunch of videos go viral. You know, the, did you guys have a tipping point video? If you were like, we slow did. Build, slow build? yeah, definitely. And that was probably about a year ago. What was it? Um, I don't know what caused it. It was just like, at did a you know what video it was? Oh, no. I mean, I think that It's Alive and Gourmet Makes like together drove a a ton of um, engagement with our channel, just like people finding those videos and through, you know, Brad as the gateway drug discovering like, oh, I'm like super into Brad, but now I'm in the BA page and I didn't realize it. There's all this other stuff here. So now like I'm watching hosted videos or like maybe you came because you watched a gourmet makes and you fell in love with Brad and then you discovered, you know, Molly's series. Right. Like you create, you know, you, when you have that get to a place of like volume, there's just more to discover. And did you, when you guys were talking about, should we do hands and pans or personalities? Did you like look around the test kitchen? You're like, these people are funny. We should Um, do personalities. (laughs) It was a little bit of both. Like I think we we did do hands and pans. And like at that time it was like Facebook video was the big push and people didn't want sound because on the Facebook videos. watching it silently. Exactly. So we did a bunch of hands and pans, but then the personality stuff was like clicking, you know? And I think we do have the benefit of having this test kitchen where these people actually come to work every day and have the same, have these conversations together, work together, um, talk about bounce ideas off of each other, problem solve together. And yeah, it's like part of reality show. Yeah. And that was a thing that we, you know, because we're not off in a studio, like one at a time shooting a video, we, that was always a part of it. Like our, the interaction of that space, the busyness, like there's always something going on in the background. And that wasn't like some creative decision. That was like, we have to keep working. How does it fit in though? (laughs) Like it's like, you are shooting a video today. The only way that we can like shoot video and get the rest of our work done is to do them at the same time. So we had to figure out like how to shoot video and, have food editors show up and develop recipes at the same time. Like so we, almost always when you're shooting a video, is that a recipe that's for the magazine or like they're shooting the work the they would be doing anyways? Um, well, like there's what's going on in the background and then it's what the host is maybe doing a demonstration of. Yeah. So, you know, most of the, a lot of the recipes that we develop, ultimately you'll end up doing a video for those. But if Chris is doing a video for his gluten-free carrot cake, I'm just making something up. In the background, what's happening is like Sola's developing something for healthy-ish and Molly's developing something for basically, they have nothing to do with what Chris is doing. Right. It's just what their work is that day. But did you have to cut down on everybody's other work to like make time for them to do, to become YouTube stars on top Um, of everything? That's like a, that's a, I mean, that's just like one of the challenges of doing all this stuff. Yeah. It just feels like. It's a whole it's a whole job unto itself to be these people. Yeah, we went including you. Yeah, it just went from like not having to carve out time in your week for video to like having to carve out a lot of time. So it's like also been a gradual shift and like figuring out how to do that. You know, one of the things that has happened is that we have like a pretty incredible video department that has a culinary food director 
who makes it really easy for us. Like in the old, in the first videos, like if I was doing a steak video, like I had to buy the steak and make sure I had a swap and prep it and like come in and get set up. And now they do that all. And now they do that all. So you can really walk in and do a hosted video and in two hours, start to finish, um, which is, you know, two meetings. You know what yeah, I mean? Like yeah, it's, yeah. It's not like a huge lift. It ends up being like much more doable because we have resources. We have like incredible production. When you hire people now, are you thinking about what they'll be like on camera? A little bit. Yeah. It's like, cause it's, it's a different role than a food editor yeah. role has ever been And you been don't have before. to be on camera, but. Do you have a lot of people who aren't, who, we, who we're not seeing? Cause I feel um, like these not days really, pretty no. much everybody yeah. is. <laughs> Even like our social media managers are in the videos. They're, yeah. You're just like, well, or I just watched the one with Soul and she's like the fresh new face. You yeah. Know? Soul is amazing. And when she got hired, I think we were hoping like it's certainly like. There's opportunity here if you're up, if you're into it, yeah. but you don't have to if you're not. And I think she's so great. Her personality is so great. I, that last video is like just dying. A lot of people wanted to know if the people in the Bon App Test Kitchen are like actually as cool as they seem. And if you guys are all actually besties or if there are any sort of behind the scenes things going yeah, on. Unfortunately, um, everyone is awesome and we are generally um, really love working together, which it's is like very annoying. It is annoying. And um, people also ask me all the time, like, how can I get a job in the BA desk? And I'm I like, got that question a lot too. <laughs> you probably can't, you know, yeah, there's um, only so many um, jobs and there's very low turnover because like people love it. Yeah. People are pretty happy working there. You know, we've been really, really lucky. And which is interesting because you are also like, building people's like if you start working in the BA test kitchen you're going to have hundreds of thousands of Instagram followers and that is often what causes people to leave and do their own thing right that's a good point I mean had that happen that much no and I think it's a combination of people really being happy and I mean at least for me I kept finding new challenges like I haven't had to leave BA because my job has changed so much over the years that I've been there I've been with Bon Appetit for eight years um And I kept kind of growing into a new job or having like a whole new set of responsibilities. So I didn't have to leave to go find that that challenge. Well, and you're able to do stuff like your cookbook without leaving. And I think that's And that was really like huge. Um, And then I think at the same time, look around, like as far as food magazines go, there's been a ton of change and, and, and like fewer opportunities. So there's not a lot of bon appetit. Yeah. I think like five years ago, six years ago, you could be like moving between real simple, saveur, gourmet, food and wine, bon appetit, and, you know, Rachel Ray. And there's just the world of publishing has changed a ton. And we have been, I think, very, fortunate and um i'm like grateful that our brand has like done really well with every digital shift and then shifting to video and still having a print magazine that people are excited about mm-hmm. you know it's hard it's like hard to recreate that so then it's like well what do you want to do do you want to be like a youtube creator well i think that that would be what i'd wonder if yeah. people wanted to go off and like be their own brand cuz that's such an instinct i yeah. think these days Maybe, but at the same time, one of the things that we all have going for us is like we get to do video, but it's not the only thing we do. Right. And that 
is I wouldn't want to only do video. I love doing video, but I also love doing podcasts and I love writing and I love creating recipes yeah. and um and reporting stories. So like I don't know if I would want to just do one thing. So you said it's pretty hard if not impossible <laughs> to get a job in the BA test kitchen. But if somebody wanted to have a career in food media these days, obviously you had a pretty unique path. Is there steps you would recommend that people take? Yeah, I get this question a lot. And I think it's a tough one for the reasons that I just yeah, said. Like, like there's fewer, in a way, there's like fewer outlets in the tradition. In traditional media, there's fewer outlets. In new media, which is like a dated phrase, but in digital media, I think there is a lot of opportunity and, and potential for growth, but you might have to start with doing your own thing. Um, so what I tell people most of the time is like, if you really want to be in food, I think you need to do the thing that you want to do, but you might have to get paid to be doing a different job. So, so if you want to write about food, like write about food, write those stories, create them, publish them however you can. Um, you might not get paid for it for like a long time. I mean, it sucks to like, say, do it as but a side hustle. Yeah. Is there? Do people? Do you guys take pitches out from outside yeah. writers? And is there anything you specifically look for in a pitch that would get you really excited? I think like every um, vertical has its own perspective, and I think that you know, like healthyish um, publishes a lot of essays. We also publish recipes there, but also a lot of essays that. I would, you know, just get to know like the kind of work that shows up and think about what ties them together. If it's like, a, you know, a, a personal growth story or if it's like some kind of a, a journey. Um, sometimes people come through the kitchen and just have pitches for recipes that sound amazing and we haven't done. And like that could be enough, you know. Um, what about features, like pitching sort of outside reported articles? Yeah, I don't assign those anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to take a full pass on that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Speaking of healthy, healthy-ish, this is a wellness podcast. Yeah. And I'm curious what sort of role you write for healthy-ish. What does wellness mean to you? Like, are you, do you follow certain food guidelines? You do stuff in your life that's health healthy. Yeah. Um, burning clean. <laughs> burning clean. We love um, burning clean. I think for me, like, you know, physical health is I exercise a lot. I don't necessarily exercise for weight loss, but um I do it because it I know it makes me feel better and I you know, believe in like wanting to get old and wanting to do as much for your body right now so that when you're old, your body will thank you, you know, and sort of taking advantage of the fact that like I am healthy and I am able-bodied and kind of like maximizing on that, you know? What do you do? Um, I do a lot of strength training and weightlifting. Cool. Um, yeah. And then I just started getting into that. It affects my mood positively more than anything I've ever done. It feels like you're taking a shot of serotonin. Or I something. totally agree. Yeah. yeah. I really like, um, just like feeling strong. Yeah. I've some, you know, people who know me will like LOL at that. <laughs> um, and I think like when I'm consistent, even though, listen, every single time I go to the gym, it is like a struggle until the second I'm out the door. It's yeah. like, 
but then you feel so good. And that's Always. if you can just tell yourself the entire time you're there, like I I this sucks. Now. Yeah. Once I'm there, I'm good to go. Yeah. Everything leading up to it is like, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I don't like I'm walking down the street going like, I don't want to go. Like, I just wish that I could somehow internalize the feeling of what it feels like after and yeah. bring a little of that into the before. <laughs> but I have like last night I was like, don't want to go. You know, woke up this morning. I'm like, oh, I have to go. Do you do it in the morning? Um, Yeah, generally, because like I, the day <laughs> just. So I don't let myself look at my phone until after I've worked out. Oh, wow. And that's been a hundred because I want to look at my phone. I'm like, I, I, I'm, every day I'm like, I'm going to wake up to an email that's going to change my life. And it never happens, right. but I still think it's going to happen. And I find that if I can wait until after I work out, it motivates me so much more. See, my mo- main motivation is like that I get to eat more. <laughs> that works too. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we work out. And the coffee. Like I have tea before and oh, I have, and coffee, have coffee after. after. Yeah, I think, but that's the same sort of like dangling some, maybe not a carrot yeah. for you since you're not that into them, but some sort of delicious thing after right. that you can aspire to. There is a carrot recipe in the new book, which I'm, ag- which you're I'm like, pretty I happy about. You're like, I don't hate carrots, guys. <laughs> I made a carrot dish that I was like, huh, actually pretty good. What's the secret to making carrots good in your eyes? Chorizo, <laughs> as it turned out. <laughs> All right. Okay. So, how does what? How else does what? I know you did a Pancha Karma, which I thought was really interesting. Oh, yeah. You mentioned that in your cookbook. Yeah. Why'd I, you do one? So, I used to do Ashtanga yoga for like 10 years. And while I was still practicing Ashtanga, there were workshops that would roll through the studio. And one of them was, um, was a Pancha Karma, like kind of half day, maybe it was a full day kind of exploration with ayurvedic like un- learnings and dietary stuff and like why you do it and um that was the first time I did it I also had at around that time was having like really bad stomach problems mm-hmm. and like a couple doctors said I had IBS but like I didn't have all the symptoms for IBS I was just like not right like something was just not right and I did panchakarma and that was actually the only thing that helped um and so that's why that and panchakarma just for people who don't know it's like an ayurvedic cleanse it involves things you eat which is the mm-hmm. kitchen you have in your book but also um there's enemas and i don't know how yeah, deep into it oil dripping on your face right i didn't do the enema what they did at the end of it was you on the last night go to bed with like a warm towel that's been soaked in castor oil but you just put that on your stomach with like a heating pad and you know some some absorbs you know into your whatever and so that was like the last day of the cleanse um and it was four did you do four days four days and then and then it became a thing that it was just like a really nice thing to do with the seasonal shift which they talked about the ayurvedic guy was like it's a nice thing to do when you know, summer turns to fall and winter turns to spring as like a, a good reset. To yeah. go away and do Panchakarma or just do like just a mini do one? The, yeah, do that four or five days okay. in where you change your 
own eating. The okay. other thing I liked about an Ayurvedic cleanse is that you eat the whole time. Yeah. And pretty hard. You don't yes. feel like you're starving. It's not it's like a not juice like cleanse. It's not like a digestive cleanse. Yeah. It's like more of a cellular and um, it is digestive and like you're eating warm foods, like all cooked foods, like very easy to digest, digest. foods. And I felt that that also was like mentally very calming. Like I liked that you knew exactly what you were going to eat every day. Because it just quieted down that whole part of my brain that's like, what am I going to eat? Which I'm sure for you is like Constant. very firing all yes, the time. Very noisy. Did it solve your gut issues? It did. Like long term? I did. At one point, I did kichiri for dinner for like almost a month. And I really tried to pra- follow the other. I wasn't as strict about it, but like I wasn't drinking and I was trying only to eat cooked foods, no raw. And I did that for almost a month. And then I was like cured. You know, um, including to this, because I, I feel like your life must be how I feel when I go to like you, like one of those food festivals where you eat a million small plates totally. and then you feel like very deliciously satisfied. But you're also like, I feel a little ill because I've eaten yeah. 400 different things today. Um, yeah, a couple, I guess it was like a year and a half ago now, also in the summer, which is because of the print cycle. The summer is when we're developing all the holiday issues. So it's like really hot out. It's like the peak of summer produce. It's like you want to eat really light and really fresh and, and you're juicy. Like roasting turkey. And you're literally eating, yeah, mashed potatoes and like roasts and like potato gratin. Yeah. Um, and I had done this for so many years. And I finally was just like, I can't, I cannot do this to myself anymore. Cause it had really ruined. We had afternoon tastings, like our tastings were at three pretty much every day. And I had like really messed up my relationship to food and eating. Cause I would almost fast all day to get to the 3 PM tasting because I knew that some days it could be like 10 different things, you know? And so then I was fasting and basically then gorging and then I would feel sick to my stomach and then come home at seven and never want to talk or look at food again. So I was on, I had a very bizarre and I wasn't eating what I wanted to eat. And like some days it worked out and you'd be like, Ooh, this is exactly what I want to eat right now. Yeah. But the norm was like, I don't really want to eat this like cake. Yeah. You know what I mean? I haven't had lunch. Um, so I took it as an opportunity to kind of like change some of the mechanics of how the tastings ran in the kitchen. So instead of me coming to every single tasting there were like the editor the f- and the food editor working on a story would bring in a third person to like be a triangle. So it's not just like one, two people. And we just um, made the groups of people tasting much smaller. So it was like the feedback was concise and there could be a real conversation. Um, and I kind of took myself out of the tastings, which I think also made it, it was for me like a little bit selfishly motivated, but it also had the benefit of, um, you know, when I'm there, sometimes people would not speak up or, or to, you know, yeah, defer to me. Yeah, and right. I kind of was like, no, I really want to know what you think. And yeah. it's kind of like, the, but the dynamic here is like makes that hard. So that was really good because, you know, then other people were making important, like making the final call on stuff. Um, 
And so it was good for me. And I think it was like good in general, like for the, for the flow. How do you do the reverse of that? Like when you're doing summer and summer produce doesn't exist in mm-hmm. the winter, do you guys we go to develop Mexico? Out, we develop sometimes a year ahead. Oh, so yeah, this summer. summer we shot several stories that won't come out until next year. Summer's the hardest spring and summer the hardest because you're to fake. Trying, yeah, you, you need the fresh produce. That only yeah, you just can't that fake that tomato. Um, And you also can't fake that light. Interesting. So you're like in spring and summer, you're developing fall, winter, spring and summer. Yeah. So this spring. So fall, winter are like nice months then for you. Yeah, we do get a little bit. Like a little bit of air. Or you're at least developing like four because like winter goes on for six months. (laughs) So in the fall. New York City. In the fall, we're developing for like March, you know, February and March. And it's like, right. Same stuff, you know. Hearty greens, root vegetables, low and slow. Yeah. Oven, oven times. <laughs> You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. You all know that I am fully obsessed with tea. I probably drink honestly like 12 cups of herbal tea a day. Because of my anxiety, I don't actually consume any caffeine. I've actually found that that caffeine type stimulation and jitters can lead me to have panic attacks, which is one of the many, many reasons why I love Pucka so much. Pucka is a tea company that I became addicted to years ago when Zach and I were living in England, and they have so many herbal teas, including tons of medicinal herbs that you really can't find anywhere else. They have so many kinds, so I definitely encourage you to go to PuckaHerbs.us to check them all out. But a few of my favorites are the Relax, which has a marshmallow root, fennel, and chamomile blend, and it helps with digestion or just general stress relief. I love to drink it to just unwind and sink into my couch. And then the after-dinner tea, which I drink whenever I feel too full, which is often because I like my snacks. And then the Tulsi Clarity, which has holy basil, which is really cool. It's actually an adaptogen that adjusts to give your body whatever it needs, whether it's more energy or more focus or more zen. I love sipping on the herbal tea all day as a way to stay hydrated without drinking a ton of caffeine or getting bored by water. And I also really love reaping the benefits of all of the functional herbs. It's such an easy, impactful thing to do to totally improve your health. I know a lot of you are worried about plastic and tea bags after all of those news stories a while back, and I'm happy to report that the Pucka bags are fully plastic-free and are stitched together with 100% organic, non-GMO cotton. No weird glues or anything. 100% of their ingredients are organic, and Pucka actually sources really consciously as well. They're certified fair for life, which is the highest standard of fair trade, which means the farmers they source from are being treated well and paid super fairly. You can go to PuckaHerbs.us, check out all of Pucka's amazing tea blends. They have caffeinated ones too, including a green tea and cardamom revitalized blend that Zach is totally obsessed with. And if you have any questions or just want to chat about tea, I love chatting about tea. Hit me up on Instagram at Liz Moody. I could honestly talk about tea until the end of time. Now let's get back to the episode. Have you had any other sort of um, health things that you've struggled with and overcome in any way the only other thing i had is that i had a really stubborn old injury from um restaurant work that um i had a lot of like sciatic pain i had this like one really stubborn just like pain in my back that i had for years and years and years and had had like pt several times i had steroid injections i had like 
you know, try this kind of exercise, know this kind of exercise. And it was the same. It kind of comes back to like when I started lifting weights, I was worried like I have this old injury. It's, you know, flares up. It can be really bad. And when I started lifting weights, like it went away. You know, I was worried wow. about aggravating it through. But it went away. It went away. Because and so, you were strengthening the muscles around it. I don't think? I don't know. I think, you know, may, maybe. Um, but whatever it was, like when I started doing that, uh, I didn't have that back pain anymore. So that is a weird motivator in a way. I'm like, when I work out, I don't, don't have that have pain. That. Yeah, that's a great motivator. Um, and when I stop, I like right away will f- will feel it again. Yeah. So that has been good because like there's only so many MRIs you want to have to yeah, have them be like, like yep, yeah, we did another MRI. We still can't figure it out. And I'm like, but I'm in pain. And they're like, you're a tough case. And I'm like, you're a tough case. What about um, mental health with just like the I get the stress of your job and you're also, I mean, I, I really hate the iteration of this question, but you have a lot on your plate. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say like, you're a working mom. Right. Um, but you have a lot on your plate. And there's also, I imagine, a stress of, of you're dictating how the country eats in a lot of mm. ways. It's a very interesting position to be in. So how do you deal with that? Yeah, I can't say that I don't have like anxiety or worry or, you know, there's definitely like just a lot of self-doubt, especially in you know, a creative field where you're like, what has everything has been done, you know, and like, what, what is, what am I going to, what's the point? Um, kind of, uh, yeah, that's something that like is, is definitely there. Um, trying to think like, how do I how do you deal with your existential ennui? Yeah. <laughs> um, Yeah, I don't know. There's something about like trying to tell yourself the thing that you would tell somebody else if they called you and said that they were feeling this way, you know, and I have a couple of girlfriends and we do call each other when we have a couple of girlfriends. No, I have a couple of girlfriends who I have this kind of relationship with where we can call each other and say, like, here's like the real deal. Like, I feel like, you know. I'm out of sorts or I am comparing myself to other people who are more successful than I am or younger than I am, or like, I can't come up with a good idea because every idea has already been done and we'll kind of talk each other through it. And I could be on either end of that phone call. Like that could be what I'm saying to some, somebody else or what they're saying to me. And sometimes you just have to like, think about what you would tell yourself if you were your own friend, you know, um, and give yourself the advice that like you would 100% in all honesty and in support, like give to your, one of your best friends, you know? So trying to have, trying to have that or like keep that good internal dialogue. And when your own internal dialogue falls apart, like having a few people that you can talk to about that. My husband is like a huge supporter of the work that I do in my career and has been like an incredible cheerleader for me. He also works in branding and marketing. So like he (laughs) has that kind of brain where he's like, here's how we're going to position this, you know? Um, So that's obviously really helpful. And then, you know, sometimes like being able to distract yourself in a way with other things that are more important, like your family or whatever it is like that can go. I think that can cut both ways. But having 
you know, kids who, who can help you put perspective on stuff. Like the things that we freak out about at work or in life or interpersonal stuff or office politics, like kids don't think about that stuff and they do not care. And like trying to, you know, channel a little bit of that sometimes too. Do you get jealous? Do you mention jealousies? And it just, I'm like, I don't know. I, I feel like if you're one of the people that I, to- I tell myself, if I could be her, then I wouldn't be jealous oh, of anybody. Okay. You know what I mean? And it's, I just, it's interesting to think of people in that position also experiencing that. Same yeah, thing. for sure. Like, you know, yeah, definitely. I mean, especially once I had a book, it's like this very measurable thing. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, Were you happy with how your book came out? I was really happy. Yeah. I really love it's it's the kind of thing that, you know, you work on it for so long that if you don't love it, love it. <laughs> By the time it comes out, you're going to be like, I never want to see this thing again. So to get to a place where when I got my first copy and I was like, oh my God, here it is, you know? And then I opened that first like author shipment and I was like, yep, it looks exactly the way it's supposed to. Were you happy with like how it came out into the world though? Yeah. Because I always think there's like, you know, the New York Times bestseller list and numbers and is it in every store I wanted to be in and is getting all the coverage. And I think it adds this whole other layer to like, yeah, I've created something I'm really proud of, but now there's all these other things. Yeah, totally. For sure. You could, yeah, it could have been... Um, I don't know. The life of a book is so different than the magazine. And that's really what I had to compare it to. And what's amazing is that I'm six or eight months now post publication. And the book is still on like the table in the bookstore when you go in like eight months post publication of a Bon Appetit is like, I don't even remember what we put right. in that issue. You That's know what I mean? And your book like has this like life. Um, and there's waves. There's waves. And also I had a spring book. So that was really nice to see how it evolved through the summer and what people started to cook once like berries were out. And then I was like, it went from like the soup and the pasta fagioli and the in the winter when it first came out and then like people were making the galettes and like, you know, now they're doing the Romanesco and like, that's um, really fun to like watch that evolution. Like, was I number one on the bestseller list? Like, no, but you know, Samin's book is three years post publication and she just, just got number, number one, one on yeah, the bestseller list. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> anything can happen. Yeah, it's crazy. And though, and, and it's funny because at this point I'm like, does that even matter for Samin? Cause she's such a, I think it matters incredible... for book sales. It's like amazing. Yeah. Um, I don't know the, the month that my book came out was when everybody was going crazy about celery juice so like every, every time i went on amazon i was like and my book was doing great on amazon yeah, you know it was like even in the all books category like i was up there and the, <laughs> this fucking celery juice book like every time i went on amazon was i was like, like right before you. <laughs> i was like what even is this celery juice book and he's like trouncing me you know what i mean yeah um that's funny because that's actually like my so this is my last question for you and then i have a few reader questions okay. and then the questions i ask everybody but you do you write for healthy-ish it's one of the properties of bon appetit and Healthyish does cover these wellness trends. So yeah. what do you think of like celery juice and charcoal and sort of the different trendy adaptogens, the different trendy elements of wellness? Yeah, I have different. It depends on what it is. I feel like celery juice is like one of those things that you're like, yes, yeah, so, <laughs> like, I don't. What is this? Like, why you know? is this um, I'm actually like 
not I'm very down on CBD in general because I think of some a lot of the CBD stuff out there is just like a freaking hoax about like mm-hmm. it's not it's not at a level that's actually therapeutic in the can of seltzer or the chocolate oh, bar. Yeah. It's like that's just and also that's robbery. not there's also no um that that's not the best way to take it. The best right. way to take it is under your tongue right. into your bloodstream. And right. so the idea of not only are you taking something that's very dilute, you're putting it into your digestive tract, which is the best way to make anything more dilute. Right. Is yeah. So that me. whole like CBD in everything just really started to drive me up the wall, you yeah. know, because um, I know there is like a th- actual therapeutic. Benefit. Have you tried it? Um, not no. like a soda, but like a tincture. No, I don't. Um, I haven't. I don't think I have. I think I one time did like a like a patch mm. for a stiff shoulder. I th- maybe it helped. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Are there okay, any trends so that I, you've like worked into your life that you're like, this is pretty legit? Uh, some supplements like I take ashw- ashwang- ash- ashwagandha, ashwagandha <laughs> every day. I take an omega-6 every day. I take probiotics every day. Do you take um, ashwagandha for stress? Yeah, for stress, definitely. And um yeah, nervous system. Uh I think it depends on the trend, you know, like um my friend Christine who Christine Mulkey, who's now a friend, she was right, she wrote in her newsletter about like having an acupressure mat to lie down on. And I was like, ooh, I could <laughs> I could get behind that. Yeah. But I think a lot of the you know, at the end of the day, I just believe in like moderation and sticking with it. Um, I did sober September, which is like, I don't know. Now there's like every month you could be doing dryuary. And I did it really because I just needed a break. I had been like the summer was crazy. Then I went to feast Portland. I drank every day. And then I was kind of like, I am just like, don't want to drink anymore. And I didn't drink for a month, which I've tried to do a couple times for dryuary and didn't work. But this time, for whatever reason, I was like, I'm so happy I'm doing this and making it like a thing, you know, and was able to stick with it. Um, Did you have any takeaways from it that like affected how you drink later? Sleeping, Like sleeping was huge. Like you slept really so much better. Really? Yeah. It was really that was like the biggest thing, I think, was that I was sleeping more and the quality of the sleep was way better yeah you think that like a glass of wine or two wouldn't make that big but it really does i think one is probably fine but it's hard to do <laughs> so it's like usually two um, um so i would do that again as far as like a fad or a trend i don't know i think it depends and i think that some of the writing that we do the coverage and healthy issues about like awareness of a trend without having to embrace the trend you know um and then some of it for me is like, what is the old school, you know, most of the knowledge that we have that kicks up into a trend is like information that we had before. Do you know right. what I mean? Like intermittent fasting, like everybody was talking about yeah. intermittent fasting. And I was like, sure, because probably the benefit at the end of the day is like it's a caloric deficit. So if you don't eat an entire day of the week you will consume fewer calories over the course of that week. Right. And ultimately, like, that's it. Like, do I buy intermittent fasting as, like, a metabolic booster? Like, not really. I don't think I do, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. 
This is one of my reader questions. People wanted to know what you do for your gorgeous curly hair. Oh, yeah. I get a lot of curl questions. <laughs> it's really, I'm sorry. This is going to be a very disappointing answer because I don't, oh, no. I don't really put any product in my hair. So a little, sometimes I do. I have a couple like, whatever, like a couple little balms or curl definers, but I use them probably twice a month. So my rules for curly hair are don't wash your hair very often. How often is not very often? Like twice a week at the most. Okay. Never turban your hair upside down. I learned okay. that from my hair cutter, Holly Smith, who's amazing. She was like, why would you, that's the opposite of how the hair comes out of your head and the way that your follicle wants to go. Your hair at the back of your neck is not trying to go straight up in the air. To That's the, interesting. So like yeah. that. Do you just, just squeeze it with a towel? Yeah, blotting with one of those, um, those high absorbency, t- they're not reducing. terry, they're yeah, like, yeah. yeah, whatever those are. So blotting (laughs) and then um you cannot touch your hair when it is in the transition from wet to like damp almost dry yeah that's the hardest that's why i'd never bother to go curly i'm just like i'm gonna blow dry straight and just like curls in because i do not have the patience to wait for like two hours when my hair dries no touching i can't that's the biggest. So Especially that's in been, New York. I know. Like I leave the, the hair. I leave the house with wet hair like every single day. Yeah, I couldn't do that. But um, yeah, that's really it. What do you use for shampoo and conditioner? Um, I bounce around. I'm always like a different. Um, I don't love the curly hair. Like I don't look for curly hair formulas. I just buy for dry hair because like curly, curly hair, hair just needs dry. moisture. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. And sometimes I do a hair mask, but it's very spotty. <laughs> what is your go-to meal when you need something lighter but nourishing? So when you're clean, yeah, I think burning, it's probably my um, the meal that I always take on on the airplane with me, which is steamed sweet potatoes um, and uh, like sautéed kale. But I do it in this way where I like the skillets dry, and I I'll have the kale kind of stripped, and um, I'll rinse it, and with some of the water clinging to the kale leaves i put that into a really hot cast iron pan and cook it until it's wilted and a little bit charred and tender and i season it and then i add olive oil at the very end what does that do i think i just it makes it so you're cooking with less olive oil overall like if i was starting with olive oil and then putting the kale in i would use a lot more right. olive oil so this is like the heat of the pan and the little bit of water is steaming it and charring it and tenderizing it. And then it's really just olive oil to like coat because it just makes it less fatty, less heavy. I don't have anything against fat, but that's, I just well, love. And you're also preserving um, a lot of the nutrients of the olive oil by not subjecting it to true. heat. True. That so. is also true. And then I have that. So I have the steamed sweet potatoes, the kale, and then some Greek yogurt and lemon and like chili flake. That is my like most kind of. Um, yeah, I feel it's super nourishing, really easy to digest, but also very like satisfying. Yeah. And then I always feel good when I eat like the orange and the greens together. So like orange food and green food. I just really crave that. The sweet potatoes. The orange. Yeah. And it could okay. be squash and collards, but like, I don't know why. The I think it's just the in the fall, like the oranges and the greens are like together. Okay. <laughs> um, One person says your book talks a lot about cooking what you're inspired to cook, but what if you have no inspiration or you're feeling inspirationless? 
Um, then I would cook something that you like know that you love, you know. Um, so if you're not feeling inspired, like with a new to come up with a new dish or craving something in particular, eat a thing that you like love, you know, for me, it would be some combination of beans and greens <laughs> or like to fra- sort of you know, remind grains. you why you love food in the first place. Yeah. Just eat things that are pleasing to you. And there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. I also just don't think there's anything wrong with eating kind of the same thing on repeat. I, I also love when I'm feeling really uninspired, sometimes I'll take a recipe book and I'll just start at the beginning of it and cook my way through to the mm. end of it because I feel like the lack of inspiration is almost this. We have too much choice and we're being bombarded by like 40 million recipes we should be making and taking the choice out of it and just being like, this is the recipe I'm making today, this is the recipe I'm making tomorrow. And I'm exposing myself to new things, but without having to like do that decision. That's cool. Yeah. yeah that's how it's you a would... more of a project, but. Right. But that's also, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's what you do with children who can't make up their mind. You just like take the choice away. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Huh. They can't handle too many choices. Like that's why when I hear parents being like, do you want the red one or the blue one or the green one? I'm like, it's like, this doesn't matter. And also we live in a world where (laughs) like there's so many more choices you're making every single day than 50 years ago, a hundred years ago. And I just feel like our brains are already like, oh my God. Yeah. I read a thing about that too, that you should do all of your decision-making early in the day because the more decisions you've made, the harder it is to make a decision. So if you have a bunch of decisions to make, like do them early. Yeah. Yeah. Because you, you're not going to be able to choose later. Which, like coming back to dinner, no, no wonder people get overwhelmed by like, what am I having for dinner tonight? Really? Um, yeah. So I love that. Okay. I know you have a list of kitchen tools and appliances at the beginning of your book, but somebody says essential for someone living in a small apartment. I'd love to have you narrow it down to like three. Essential yeah, for like- a small apartment. I would definitely have a stovetop pressure cooker. I think they are amazing and would you go for that over an instant pot i would because my personal preference is like i'm in it for the pressure cooking and i just don't really care about the slow cooking okay and i can make a good pot of rice without an instant pot so i just feel like if the thing that you're after is the pressure just then just get the pressure cooker okay also in a small apartment an instant pot takes up a ton of counter space because it's electrical so you're Pressure cooker just sits where a normal pot would go. Yeah, I instant pot on my living room floor. Right. (laughs) And I've used the instant pot. There's, you know, I just, yes, I would go with a stovetop for for efficiency and for space. Um, I would say a 12-inch cast iron as opposed to a 10 because you can roast in it. um, And it's just going to give you like more... You can just do more in it. It doesn't mean you can't do a smaller batch of a thing, but Including like you, weightlifting, like you're tying there that you go. <laughs> But you can get, you know, a whole, you could get a big chicken and a lot of vegetables into a 12 inch cast iron. Um, um, and you can also saute in them. So that's very efficient. Um, one more thing. Mm-hmm. Unless you don't think you, I mean, do you need a knife? Oh, yeah. Is that equipment? Yeah, it's equipment. Oh, okay. I think of knives as tools. Okay. <laughs> so I'm like equipment and tools. Um, yeah, I would then get like a nine inch um, carbon, you know, stainless slicing knife. A brand you love? I love my UX10, which is a Misono knife. It's a Japanese knife. I've had it since I was a line cook at Union Pacific. 
Oh, I yeah. like been through so much <laughs> it with you. It really has. What are three things you would teach your younger self? Oh. Oh, my God. Appreciate your hot body. My God. I think it's such a fascinating thing that I will look at a photo that I guaranteed that I looked fat in I five know. years ago. And I'll be like, I looked so good. So annoying. So good. And I didn't post it or share it with anybody because I thought it looked terrible. Same. Yeah. And it's like so annoying. Um. Don't cut your hair short. It's not a good look for you. So that I've had short hair for like a while. And oh, my younger self. I actually would have, you know, we were talking about like other people going out and partying more when I, I would have partied a little bit more. Like partied. I'm very happy with how everything ended up. I've been married for 20 years. Yeah. But I met my husband when I was really young. So like maybe. If I could have delayed that two or three years just for like a little bit of irresponsibility, like yeah. I was always very responsible. Mm. I could have been a li- slightly less responsible. You know, my dad thinks that you should do all your irresponsible stuff when you're like 70 oh. because the the repercussions aren't as bad because if you get a tattoo you hate, you're going to have it for like 20 right. years <laughs> instead of 80 years. And if you get a weird STD, you're going to have it for 20 years instead right. of 80 years. So he's like, he's like, you should go to your orgies. You should do all the drugs. Like, do why it not? when you're old. Yeah, okay. So you can, you cool. can do it with your husband. Something to look forward to. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when I'm doing ayahuasca in totally. retirement. Perfect. I think that's excellent. Um, all right. Last one from my audience. Who was your favorite back-to-back celeb in the test kitchen? Um, and do you have any, like, gossip about that? Because that's such a fun series. I, uh, God, funnest. Probably Shangela was the funnest. And it was just, she was the perfect combination for me, which is that on back to back, it's the most fun for me when the other person really can't cook. Yeah. Because when the other person can kind of cook, it's like, well, what are we what, even doing? Yeah. You know what do I mean? Do you ask for like when you're deciding to do that series, do you usually try to pick chefs that haven't cooked that much? Um, no, it's just always a bonus. The way okay. that we choose is kind of like there's so many factors involved, including like timing and what a person is promoting and yeah. like who's in New York and like who's else will you know do well on that platform yeah. and like um i just like to find out what their skill level is so that i can tailor the recipe to kind of if it's someone who's more experienced and i would want to do something that's like challenging for me too so that there's always like there should be a struggle right We're, you know yeah, we had to sure. overcome something together yeah um but shangela couldn't cook at all like had no i mean the first line i was like so um, the first thing we're going to do is like put whatever in the pot. And she goes, okay, what's a pot? Which I almost didn't like really quite register that she said it in when it was actually happening. Um, but when you watch it, she's like literally looking at the station. She's like, what's a pot? Oh my gosh. And I so haven't seen this one. It was, <laughs> it's an older one. And then the other thing that was so amazing about her was she was, she was so performative. She was giving it a thousand percent so i have no idea what's going on behind me like I, we really don't turn around and i right. don't look she was partying for the camera so hard so the the episode is so fun to watch because she was just like she never stopped like she kicked her shoes off and like partied her way through the entire thing and then we also made churros together and she did it 
So that's very gratifying. Really fun. Yeah, that's super cool. Do you, are you a person who gets like starstruck by any type of celebrity? Oh, everybody. Oh, every really? time. Oh, you yeah. You seem so casual. It's just like, it, I just have to remember. I get really nervous before. That's when I'm the most nervous is like the half hour before. Yeah. Because my call time is always half an hour before the talent arrives. So when I come back to do the little run through last like kind of station check and um, and then I'm waiting for them to show up. That's when I get the most nervous. And um, the funny thing is that like when they walk in, they're nervous. Because it's it's probably much more out of their comfort zone than anything else they're doing on press tour. Exactly. And I think a lot of people think that we're going to goof them or like um, make them look bad, look bad or in, intentionally make it like so hard that something like explodes in there and they get yeah. splashed, you know. And I, I tell people, I'm like, us doing the same amount of good is like the goal. So... Um, the last person I did one with was DeAndre Jordan from the Nets, and he's like over seven feet tall. And he walked in and he was like, we had to like bring in a whole new piece of camera equipment <laughs> because he's taller than the pot rack that like is oh over God. the station. And um, so they had to bring in a jib, which like our uh the guy who was directing was like, I was like, oh, is that a jib? He was like, oh, fancy, like, camera word. Like, everybody was, like, really excited. We had to, like, change the whole setup. And he's, like, a world-famous performer, like, you know, does athleticism on stage at, like, the top of his, yeah, you know, with powers. hundreds of thousands of people watching. And he walked into the kitchen and was like, I'm nervous. And I was like, me too, but, like, for, diff for different <laughs> reasons. And then once we start cooking, I relax because I'm doing the thing I know how to do. Who are you um, most starstruck by? Natalie Portman. Yeah. I couldn't believe she agreed to. I mean, they told me Natalie Portman was coming, and I thought everybody was, like, screwing with me. And, and like, why Carla she and Natalie Portman's coming like to do us. back to back. And I was like, oh, yeah, real funny. And who's next? Like George Clooney. And they were like, no, yeah, he's next. <laughs> Seriously, Natalie Portman's coming. Was she nice? So nice. Does she have that star radiant thing, though, where you're like, even 100%. if you were in a normal restaurant, like I would know you're a special. Like, even if I've never seen you in a movie, I would know you're a special person. 100 yeah. percent. And she's tiny. She's I know it's my favorite thing about celebrities is they're all my height and my height is the thing that I'm the most sensitive about in the world. And that when I meet any celebrity, I'm like, oh, you're so you're short. I mean, they're I also thought. like half my width, but they're tiny. Yeah. And I love it. It makes me really happy. She was, you know, she was cool because she she really likes food. She's vegan, right? She's vegan. So we came up with like I came up with, you know, this vegan recipe that would be really fun to do. But she used a mandolin. She like, you know, and she was, you know, the the thing that's so fun for me is like at the end, the people who don't think they can cook are like so proud of what they did. And that to me is is just the funnest part of it is like, you know, we're doing it because it's fun and it's funny to watch two people kind of struggle through this and get. But it's so gratifying that at the end someone is just like, wow, like I did not think I was going to be able to do that. And now we're eating, you're eating the food that I made. Like that has been a little bit of, you know, microcosm of what I hope the recipes do, you know, and that all of the other, the hosted videos where we take somebody through the steps, like getting feedback from people through Instagram or Twitter, like I didn't think I could cook. And then I watched her video and like, 
then I tried it and like, this is this thing that I made. It was amazing. And like, that's, that's the best. Your videos are, they're so the hands and pans, you're not, you're seeing what people are doing, but you're not seeing why they're doing it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why so many of your series are so interesting because you're seeing the why behind things and you actually feel like you're becoming a better cook. I hope so. Awesome. And then there's people who just like to watch it to wind down before they go to sleep. And that's fine too. (laughs) All the things. Okay. Quick fire. Have you ever been somewhere in the world and been like the people here really got it right in terms of health or happiness? And if so, where? Oh, I don't know about health, but any, every time I've traveled in Mexico, I was like, the people here are the nicest, best people in the world. Anywhere in Mexico? I mean, I've been a few different places. I've been in Mexico City. I've been to the Yucatan. I've been uh, to like the like surfy part on the West Coast and everywhere I've been, the people there are like the best. Yeah. Awesome. I need to, I'm saving Mexico for when I move back to California because it's closer and we're closer to Europe here. So I'm like, you're close to the Yucatan here though. I know I should just go. Yeah. Um, I need to go to Oaxaca next. I'm dying. Yeah. That's so high on my, I just want to eat my way through exactly. all of Mexico. Is there a purchase that you've made recently that's made your life healthier, happier? Yes. <laughs> it's not that sexy. But when I was in Portland, I went to the Nike store and I got a new pair of shoes because I'd been in the same ones um, and realized that the shoes I've been wearing were a full size too small. Oh, no. <laughs> and so now I'm wearing these shoes and I'm like, oh, that's why <laughs> I was having like all of this like cramping in my arches. So dumb. But like, yes, it has made me much happier. That's a good one. <laughs> What do you think is the best way to spend 20 minutes every day in terms of living your best life? Hot shower. Oh, for full 20 minutes? You're yeah. like my husband. All my be- best ideas. This is why we can't move back to California because yeah, you single-handedly like caused the drought. No, all of my best ideas have come like midway through a very hot shower. Interesting. Yeah, do you pop out and write them down? Sometimes I stick my head out. I'm like, hey, Siri, <laughs> take dictation. I, I came up with my deck, you know? Do you feel successful and what does being successful mean to you? I do feel successful. I think that I have set like a bunch of goals and then I did them and that's meant a lot to me. Like I think the decision to write a cookbook was sort of like, I don't know why I decided. I just thought it was like a thing that I should do and that I had it in me. And then I did it. And then I was like really happy with how it came out and was like, would do again. Um, I think being in a workplace that I've been in for as long as I have and getting now, like I have 20 years in the same field. I don't love a lot of things about getting older, but one of the things that's been great has been that you do get better and better at things, especially when you stay in the same like trade, you know, I know. And I think there's such an instinct these days for myself included. I think I've always stayed writing proximate, but people want to bounce around, I think a lot more than they used to. And I do think that's something that's lost, you know, with the stuff that I have stuck with, i.e. writing, I've seen it just get better and better and better with time. Yeah. And I think that when I look back, like at my younger self, I still am, you know, I have a short fuse. I can get caught up on like small things like that's part of how I'm wired but I'm so much calmer than than I was so in that way like you're 
you're evol- hopefully evolving into a better version of yourself. You know what I mean? Like you're never not going to like be yourself. And that's just part of how I'm wired. But those things have like become less like I used to be much more comp- competitive with people. Mm-hmm. And that's become like less over time. Because you've just grown or because now you like legitimately are just one of the best people because you put no, in all that time. No, I think it's just that I've like grown and have more. um perspective on it. And I think I also ended up in a workplace where we really root for each other, like all the time, you know, like I hired Molly, Andy and Chris, and now they're, they're my equals and their achievements, they will, they're going to out achieve me. And I'm like psyched for them, like genuinely psyched for them. And I think that that came from being in a workplace where like, we really did support each other. You know what I mean? So that feels, that feels really good to like come out, look back and be like, this has grown and been this thing that's really important to me. And then also I have, I like really like my kids. (laughs) I'm very proud of them. I think they're like good humans. And so as a parent, you have to feel a little bit of like, good, you know, good job. You like, I know that they are the way that, you know, you are who you are and that's true for your children too. They're going to be who they're going to be, but I'm like some amount of just parenting decisions that we've made, like are coming back and that we have these like good children, you know? Yeah. Well, and even if it, they are who they are, you like created them on a cellular level. So you get credit for that there too. You go. Yeah. You get yeah. credit no matter what. My son has one, my older son has like the most incredible curly hair and I'm like, yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> you're welcome. That came from my side. Does your, is your husband straight? Yeah. And blonde. So oh, yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. All right. Last one. What is one thing, one big mistake you've made and one thing that you really feel like you got right? Maybe a big mistake was leaving Shake Shack before they expanded and went public because <laughs> I would have a different life. Like people I hired as interns at Shake Shack are like regional managers and were the, you know what I mean? And then I'm like, I'm so happy for everybody. But if you hadn't done that, would you have had the editorial experience yeah. when the BA job came along? And I, I left because that was the right thing for me. Yeah. So. Yeah. It wasn't, I don't think of that necessarily. Are you motivated by money? Is that like a driving factor in your life, Um, would you say? Or are you more motivated by other factors? I'm, I don't, yeah, being in media, like you can't be that motivated by money. And I think if I had had that thought, I would have chosen a completely different career path. I never, I didn't think, I really honestly was just like, it'll, it'll work out. I like money. You know, money makes, things easier. Having more money makes things easier. And I have more money now than I did as like a line cook who That's made $450 a week. And like that has been good. One of the best parts of getting older, as far as I can tell. That's what my dad said to me when I turned 40. I was like, like I'm turning 40. I can't, uh, I don't like this. And he was like, mm. he was like, 40s, 40s, good. 50s better. And I was like, what? planet are you on? Like, I'm telling you, I don't even want to turn 40. And you're telling me that like 50 is better. Like what part of this aging thing are you not computing? He was like, well, I had more money when I was 50 than when I was 40. So 50 was better. And I was like, wow, 
leave it to a man. (laughs) (laughs) But it's also like, I mean, I remember it wasn't that long ago that I like wanted to throw Zach a birthday party and I literally didn't have the money to like throw him a birthday party that I thought he'd be excited about. And now I feel like I can. And that's cool. I remember thinking when I was younger that like the ultimate thing would be to go out to dinner for your birthday and not have to ask everyone to split the bill. And that that was like a mark of adulthood. Or when I just think even when you go out to dinner and instead of everybody being like, oh, I only ate this $7 thing when people or when they they fight over who gets to pick it up. I always saw my parents doing that. And I was like, can you imagine fighting over getting to pick up the check? What? That's so funny. That happened to me yesterday. I was out to lunch with someone and. You know, I just thought we were going to split it. And she was like, no, like I'm doing this. And it was so sweet. And also getting to a point where you're like, okay, like I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you back. Yeah, Yeah. It's it's a magical, magical thing. And it's so grown up feeling. Okay. What's one thing you really got right? Take us home. Um, I think that. So I got married when I was 26, which is pretty young to get married and we're still married. <laughs> and so I don't think you get to go through as many transitions as we've been through, which is also like from, you know, when we got married, I was a line cook who made $450 a week before taxes to like the life that we have now and having, you know, two kids. And like, I think I made a good decision, which like, most of the decisions you make when you're 26, you don't expect to like live with for 20 years. And I definitely didn't think about it as like, well, I'm a 26 year old whose brain is like not even done developing. And I'm not a fully like formed human, really adult, but I'm going to make this like massive life decision. Um, And we got married and moved into this house the same within two or three months. And so I yeah, it kind of nailed that one for sure. Is there a secret to having like a long we're 13 years in? Uh-huh. But... Yeah. So my secret to having a long marriage is don't get divorced. Even when it's like <laughs> hard. I mean, no, I'm being facetious. Like if you don't get divorced, you'll have a long marriage. Have a long marriage. But also like there I think there is some truth to like the divorce rate used to be lower because people didn't think divorce was an option. Right. I think for me, one of the realizations I had was that not every year is going to be an A plus. And if you're in it for the long haul, like you have to be okay with that. Like we've had some like C's and C pluses where you're like, that wasn't our best year. You know, my husband hates it when I say that. He's like, oh, that's terrible. I'm like, not every one of these is going to be like amazing. Well, and also like, how do you know if it's an A, if it's just always A's, you know? (laughs) Great. I'll use that line. (laughs) Really though. And I also think it's heartening for people who like, we are not, unless you were lucky enough to grow up in a happy marriage home, which I think fewer and fewer people are. The only examples we're given of relationships are these really perfect, pristine. And then you feel crappy that your relationship doesn't appear to be that. So I think people talking about like, it's not always that is so important. Yeah. I mean, definitely feeling like, you know, that was a really hard year or like we had to make sacrifices that weren't that fun or, you know, parenting small kids like puts an insane amount of stress in your interpersonal life. And like, but you're going to come out the other side and like, 
there would be better years. You know what I mean? Yeah, I love that. Um, so I think that has been, and it's like the realist in me that's like, all right, that wasn't the best. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. But you got to like work it out. I think we both came from, both of our parents were in long marriages that had ups and downs, you know what I mean? And you got to like work it out. Love that. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. It was my pleasure. Thanks for being here. All right. I hope you loved that episode. Carla was so lovely and her cats were so cute, which is definitely high on my list of loving a person. If you did love this episode and you wouldn't mind terribly, if you could share it with somebody that you think would also love it, that's one of the best, best ways to support this podcast. And I massively appreciate it. And if you haven't left a rating or review on iTunes yet, I would massively appreciate that as well. It honestly takes like 10 seconds. You don't have to write very much, but it's hugely helpful in helping other people find the podcast. And I appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. And I read every single rating and review and uh, often they make me cry. So thank you for that. Um, I hope you love this episode and I will see you on the next episode of the Healthier Together podcast. Thanks for listening. If you have dry skin, this is going to be your holy grail. I've loved, loved, loved the Osea Andaria Algae Body Butter for years. It is so rich and creamy and lush, but it sinks right into your skin, and it makes your entire body feel moisturized and not greasy at all. I actually do not understand how it's so not greasy and yet so, so hydrating. As fall approaches, I'm leaning into mini spa energy these micro-relaxing moments you can insert throughout your day. Because peppering your day with tiny bits of calm can have huge impacts on overall cortisol levels, on your anxiety, even how you sleep at night. And the smell of the body butter, holy cow, it is pure spa energy. You get that like laying on the massage table, melting energy. It is phenomenal. I've gone through at least four tubs of this personally, and that is saying something because it lasts a long ass time. A little bit goes a very long way. I also always keep extras on hand to give out as gifts. It uses ingredients that you would normally see in face care products like seaweed, ceramides, glycerin, which I am obsessed with for hydration and think is so underrated, amino acids, even a skin-identical moisture complex. Also, here is a little tip. If you want to amp up its hydrating power even more, put it on damp skin right after the shower to really lock in all of that moisture and hydration. Like all Osea products, it's formulated with real seaweed to take advantage of its nutrient-rich benefits like deep moisturization. It's also vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified. Osea has actually been making seaweed-infused products that are safe for your skin and the planet for over 27 years. And I personally absolutely love how everything is ethically tested and sourced. For clean body care that gives you skincare-level results, you've got to try Osea. And right now we have a special discount just for our listeners. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with promo code LizMoody at OseaMalibu.com. You'll get free samples with every order and orders over $60 get free shipping. 
While you're there, get the body butter, of course, but I'm also obsessed with the Vegas Nerve Oil and Pillow Mist, both of which help so much with my anxiety. I love rubbing the oil on my hands and inhaling deeply before I meditate to make it feel more intentional and calming and grounding. You are going to want it all. Go to OSEAMalibu.com, promo code Liz Moody. 